As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You know what, Wisconsin, as it turns out, boring wins. It was a big day in Wisconsin. Truth has prevailed over the lies, over the character assassination. For incumbents. I'm jazzed as hell to tell you that on January 3rd, 2023, I will still be the 46th governor. Not so big. Unfortunately, the math doesn't add up. For their challengers. I know that you're all disappointed. And I'm disappointed, too. A split decision of the state's biggest political races sets the stage for two more years of gridlock in Madison and Washington. Holy mackerel, folks. How about that? From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined by Fox 6's political reporter, Jason Calvi. Hey, Jason. Good morning. We are recording this episode on Thursday, November 10th. A couple of days after the election, this is um, you know time to sort of wrap our arms around what really happened here. Jason, we know this was a big day for incumbents. Governor Tony Evers, uh, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, Attorney General Josh Call, they all hold on to their place in office. For you, what are the biggest takeaways so far from the 2022 fall election in Wisconsin? Well, just the fact that, you know, Wisconsin didn't go red, it didn't go blue, and both, it went purple. Uh, it's a swing state. It's, we, we all, it's been a swing state, uh, crucial for both presidential races and, and Senate and governor's races. And instead of going one party or the other, they went with both. Uh, both of the top of the ticket Senate and governor races here were, were, were went with the incumbents, the Republican uh, on the Senate and the Democrat in, for the governor's uh, office. And it just it just it's just a perfect encapsulation of what Wisconsin is as a swing state going with with both parties here. And I think it was a big mystery, I think, for for a lot of people outside. Well, what was going on here? How, how can you go with both a, a Democrat and a Republican? They went with the incumbents. They also went with the candidates who spent the most the most amount of money. Uh, Evers had a, a huge war chest going into the race. Um, you know, Tim Michaels, he had a, a, a grueling primary against Rebecca Clayfish. He spent a lot of his own cash on that primary. And, uh, and, and Governor Evers was sitting on a war chest. Lots of outside money, lots of uh, outside groups also investing in these races. It was a ton of cash. We saw record, uh, record spending in the governor's race. Um, and so all of that cash you know, did, you know, was, was meant to, to impact voters. And, and a lot of the things that we've been focusing on in the, in the last few months were those independent voters. Because when you look at the polls, when you look at the latest, the, the last Marquette Law School poll before Election Day, Republicans, 95% of them or more were saying they were going to vote for their party's candidates. 
95% or more of Democrats said they were going to vote for their party's candidates. So what does that leave? Well, it leaves those independent voters, those who aren't Republicans, or don't say they're Democrats or Republicans. Those are the ones who are up for grabs today or on election day. And those are the ones that swung this election going both, both directions, both for the Democrats and Republicans. You know, we've talked about this, but this is a midterm election. And in midterms, uh, when it's not a presidential year, an even numbered year that isn't for uh, president, Oftentimes, whoever is in the White House, if it's the Democrats, it's a great year for Republicans. If it's a Republican in the White House, it's a good year for Democrats. So there was all this talk about the possibility of a red wave, that Republicans would sweep through all of these races. They would win all sorts of governorships. They would win U.S. Senate and House seats. They would take control uh, of Congress. Uh, they, they might get a supermajority here in Wisconsin. And that happens because if one part of the ticket is doing well, the rest of the ticket generally will do well. All the people down the ballot will just ride their coattails and they have this big wave. We didn't see the wave. In fact, we saw something really interesting, which is sort of a split decision. You had people voting in Wisconsin anyway, in the big races, some voting for a Republican in one race and a Democrat in the other. I don't think we've seen that in a while. What's going on there, Jason, with these split votes? Yeah, I mean, we've been we've been asking. I, when I've been on doing some of these live shots on Fox Six, uh, I've asked. I've, I've direct. I looked at the camera. I said, "Listen, if you're one of these independent voters that voted both for Johnson and Evers, call me. I want to hear from you." And we're putting those messages out on, on Facebook and our social media platforms as well. And we're actually we're we're getting a number of people that are responding and telling us what it was that made them cast a ballot for a Democrat and a Republican, you know, and, and I think at the end of the day, uh, there's a there's a lot of different reasons why they why they say they, they voted for different parties. Uh, a couple of people chimed in and said they wanted to vote because they wanted to provide a check on the various branches of government. So, for example, people some people said they voted for Evers because he'll be a check on the Republican legislature. They voted for Senator Johnson because he will be a check on the Biden administration. So, you know, Wisconsin is a as a swing state. They 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 went. Some of these voters, not not all of them, but some of them, particularly said they were they were voting to vote on a person who would be a check on, on the other branches. So that was that was one reason why people said that they were voting for both parties. Well, because it, it, it's hard to imagine, Jason, if you're talking about people who are voting for the person, it's hard to imagine anyone who could think that they support the policies and the platform of Tony Evers, but also support the policies and the platform of Ron Johnson, the two extremely different candidates, right? Right. Yeah. And, and what, what some of the voters said that responded to us said that they were looking, that they, they thought that the person they voted against were too extreme. So some people said they, they, they thought Barnes was too extreme on the left, and some people thought Michaels was too extreme on, on the right. Uh, some, so that's why at least one voter here said they, they voted for Evers and they voted for Johnson because they thought that their opponents were too extreme. Well, where do you, how, what, makes the, what, what makes the candidate extreme in your eyes? Um, you know, again, Wisconsin, when you're looking at all the ad spending, um, it was, like I said, it was the most expensive governor's race in Wisconsin history. Um, and, and those ads really did, I, I think, in some ways plant images of, of the candidates. You know, there was a lot of attacks against Michaels for, for being too extreme. There were a lot of ads against Barnes for being too extreme. Now, at the end of the day, if you talk to the voters, well, did the ads sway you? They may say no, 
but it did leave that message in, in the voters' minds and the two candidates that ended up winning were the ones that did spend more money on, on television, particularly um, in, in Milwaukee and, and Green Bay and in well, all the media markets in Wisconsin. But when you look at the ad spending, Milwaukee was the, uh, was the, third, the third most uh, – for all the cities in the whole country, they, they were number three with the total number of ad, ads run, uh, and it just shows how important Wisconsin was nationally, statewide, to, to, to target those Milwaukee voters um, was, was a priority of the campaigns, and we see it in the ad spending. Now Milwaukee is number three for the whole country, and total number of ads that ran this, uh, this, uh, this election. You know, covering elections is often a, a game in advance of prediction. And then afterwards, it's it's the debrief. It's the Monday morning quarterback. So what really happened here? Why did this happen? And one of the ways we sort of evaluate that is looking at who voted and where they voted. And and in, in one instance, we're looking at just how much turnout was there. And overall, there was obviously a huge turnout for this election. But we're seeing some numbers. Dane County, for instance, a Democratic stronghold, had enormous turnout. But Milwaukee County actually had a lower turnout this time than a couple of years ago. So what's going on there? Any any idea what's happening? Why we're seeing in two different urban Democratic strongholds, one had this enormous record turnout and another saw a little bit of a drop off. So we saw in, in Dane County, we saw about 302,000 votes this midterm election. And when we look back at Dane County in 2018, we had 294,000. So if my math is correct, that's eight, uh, 8,000 uh, 8, more voters in Dane County. Uh, Dane County has, has, uh, has, has grown uh, its population, I understand. Is that, is that uh, something you've found in the census reports as well? I have to go back and check on that. But at least we're seeing more, more voters uh, turning out in Dane County, 8,000 more. But at the same time, in Milwaukee County, we're seeing... 42, a 42,000-person drop between 2018 and 2022. And when it comes down to what I was most surprised with, that was, that was it right there, the drop in Milwaukee County, because there was this election cycle, there were groups on the left and the right whose whole mission was to try to turn, and also independent or groups that are officially nonpartisan that were targeting Milwaukee County and trying to drive uh, – record turnout in Milwaukee County, you, you even, I don't, you drive around uh, on the interstates and you see these ads that said, we're going to have record turnout in the fall. Well, it turned out that we're, it, we're not really seeing that, that those ads were, we're trying, I think, to uh, encourage people to vote. But at the end of the day, um, when we look at the grand totals for, for uh, election day, and again, we're still waiting for the, the official results to be certified at the municipal level and then at the county level and then at the statewide level. But um, really, statewide, the numbers are pretty on par with what we saw in, uh, in 2018 um, at, the, at that midterm. So we didn't see this boost. There was a lot of speculation that there was going to be huge turnout because, again, these groups were going door to door urging people that hadn't voted before to vote. They were, they were bringing up all the various issues that we've seen in the campaign ads and tr trying to get the people to vote. And at the end of the day, in Milwaukee County, they just they, they had a 42,000-person voter drop between 2018 and 2022. And that's still a mystery. I, 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 I do intend to, in our reporting, to look into where, where, were, where were the particular uh, hot spots for um, – maybe increased voter turnout and then the, the cool spots where the voter turnout was depressed. We saw in the AARP poll, which was in September, it, uh, it looked at 
it, it, it heavily sampled African Americans in Wisconsin over the age of 50. They were looking at, and they saw in September that the uh, that African Americans had. Uh, compared to other races, were, were not as enthused about voting um, this midterm. Um, what was that? What, why, why, weren't, why weren't they enthused? And then we saw you know, reinforcements brought in. We saw pre former President Barack Obama coming into Milwaukee and encouraging votes in, in, a, in a heavily African-American area to, to encourage them to come out and vote. He's a turnout machine. I mean, when you look at the numbers uh, that, he, that he got in 2012 and 2008, I mean, he was really a turnout machine across Wisconsin and, and particularly in, in Milwaukee County. And he was hoping to sort of replicate that enthusiasm again in 2022. Looking at those numbers in September, there was definitely warning signs for Democrats that there was an enthusiasm gap here. He was trying to enthuse votes, but at the end of the day, it, it, 42,000 people in Milwaukee County, fewer votes in, in 2022. And it's something I really want to know more about as we move forward. And when it comes to trends, we know that uh, Tony Evers has defended and will be uh, remaining the governor of Wisconsin. But throughout the rural parts of the state, he actually lost support. Tim Michaels uh, did better in rural parts of the state uh, than, than Scott Walker did in 2018 when he lost to Tony Evers. But in the suburbs... Tony Evers, well, not only the suburbs, of course, obviously in Milwaukee and Dane County, his margins of victory were bigger. But in the suburbs, that's really seems to be where there's been a transformation from a solid red, you know, the wow counties that we call them, which is Waukesha, Ozaki, and Washington counties. They've been solidly red for a long time, but they're starting to bleed a little more purple. And that made a difference here, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, that was a crucial thing I was watching on election night. I, I was really um, kind of stunned by, by the numbers in, in Waukesha County. That is an area that is a, it's typically been a Republican stronghold. I mean, when you look back at 2014, when Scott Walker won the governor's office, he won 72% of Waukesha County. That lead dwindled for President Trump down to 60%, both in 2016 and 2020. You can see that there was a less enthusiasm for, for Donald Trump in Waukesha County. Then when Scott Walker was again on the ballot in 2018, he got 66% of Waukesha County. So you can see sort of this trend down from that Republican stronghold of 72% in 14 down to 66% in 2018, uh, and then down to 60% both in 2016 and 2020. So Michaels was coming in at 60% in Waukesha County. That is not good enough. That is not good enough to win the state of Wisconsin. Waukesha County has the most amount of Republican voters. Republicans need to really run the score up huge uh, amounts, uh, huge amounts in, in Waukesha County. He was at 60%. He was not able to, to, to really run up the score as much as he needed to in Waukesha County. And I think at the end of the day, that is just uh, one example of why he lost the state of Wisconsin, getting only 60%. Of, of Waukesha County. Now, of course, Donald Trump won the state in 2016 with only getting 60% of Waukesha County. But in this election, in the midterms, when there's less voter turnout, he really needed to drive that base of uh, Republican support in Waukesha County. He didn't, didn't get it. Um, we also saw him in, in many other counties trailing Senator Ron Johnson. So Senator Ron Johnson got several more points in each of these counties. When looking at Kenosha, looking at, at Waukesha, uh, and throughout the state, Senator Johnson was overperforming Tim Michaels, and at the end of the day, one's the winner, 
one's the loser today. We talked about some of the issues that affected these races, and one of the big ones that sort of interrupted the so-called red wave in coming was the Supreme Court's decision uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision. And obviously there was a lot on the line here in Wisconsin. Should Tim Michaels have become governor, or should uh, the Republicans have won a super majority in the legislature? Should Eric Toney have won his race uh, to become attorney general? Uh, then the 1849 ban that is in place, uh, you know, perhaps uh, would, would have stayed exactly as is. You instead have uh, the attorney general uh, holds his seat, and we know that attorney general call is uh, fighting that legally, that 1849 ban. Um, but we otherwise have divided government. We have Tony Evers still in the governor's office, and we still have Republicans controlling the legislature. What does that mean in Wisconsin potentially for the abortion issue going forward? Well, that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at. Governor Evers, uh, during one of his pre-election events at the Milwaukee Press Club, at the Rotary Club, it was a, a joint a event with them, um, he was asked about this. Well, if, if the legislature sends you a bill that adds exemptions for rape and incest, but keeps the overall abortion ban on the books, would you sign it? And Governor Evers said no, he would not sign that bill to add the two exceptions, two more exceptions to the law, because it would you know, keep that uh, uh, overall abortion ban on the books. So he, he was, at, at least pre-election, was unwilling to compromise on, uh, on this particular issue. As you mentioned, right now the abortion ban on the books uh, does allow one exception for the life of the mother, uh, but it does. It, but but there's questions about whether to add more exceptions for rape and incest. Um, Tim Michaels, in his campaign, uh, in the primary, originally said that that 1849 abortion law was, echoed or reflected his his viewpoint. Um, but then during the general election, he kind of expanded or or modified that view and said that he would sign a bill that got to his desk that added rape and, and incest exceptions to that old uh, abortion ban. So we saw that as kind of a feature in this campaign. And at the end of the day, it's going to be a question moving forward because the legislature uh, right now uh, could could be considering what to do with the abortion ban. I know Speaker Voss was on the ra uh, talk radio this morning, addressed that issue. Um, Republicans were looking to have a supermajority. They they were a few seats away, and they did not reach it. And I, I'd like to talk a little bit about more about what the supermajority means. Uh, Governor Tony Evers has uh, set the record for the number of vetoes issued in a in a single legislative session. Um, and state history. So we're talking about all of Wisconsin history. He's he's number one in vetoes in a single legislative session. I mean, he's vetoed bills on abortion, on education, on COVID-19, on uh, guns, uh, and, uh, and hot button issues. He's vetoed those bills. With a sewer majority, the legislature is able to override the veto and then enact the laws. So pretty much they could pass the pass the bills. He could veto them and they would be able to still make them law with an override. They were hoping to have that supermajority to do that. Now it's not the case. They, they, they did get a supermajority in the Senate. They did pick up one, uh, one Senate seat in uh, Northwest Wisconsin. They did get the supermajority there, but they did not get the supermajority in the assembly. They needed to pick up five assembly seats. They only picked up three. They were able to flip three Democratic seats that's not enough. They do not have the supermajority 
in the assembly. So now Governor Evers gets to keep and, and save his veto pen, and you can expect that he will be using it as as we move forward here uh, with a with a with a Madison that uh, with the Republican legislature, the Democratic governor that don't always get along, and as you see in all those vetoes that Governor Evers has uh, done in his time in office. So with the Senate having a supermajority now, uh, the Republicans having one in the state Senate, and being two seats away from it in the assembly. Does that change the strategy a little bit? Could they, does it give the legislature, the Republicans in the legislature, a bit more authority to go ahead with some things if they can just turn a couple of moderate state senators around? If they can get a couple more votes on their side, they can cut the governor out of the process. Does that give them a little more wiggle room to try to push some of their agenda? Yeah, that's right. So they they, they could. There is a little, because they've got it. They've got it now. They've solidified that supermajority in the Senate. Um, they're two seats away in, in the assembly. So... There have been a, a number of times where I've seen Democrats in the assembly, um, more moderate uh, areas, um, go ahead and vote with, with Republicans on various uh, controversial issues. Um, so we'll see if that plays out here. I, I do hope to speak with um, Republican leaders today to find out sort of their strategy moving forward and, and what is it going to take to get some of these bills, if the governor does veto them, what the strategy is to pick off a couple more Democrats because if they can get the, if they can get a couple if they can get the two if they can get two moderate Democrats on various issues to agree with them, then yeah, they can pass the bills despite uh, Governor Evers' veto. Um, we will see. You go through the whole list, but there are bills where maybe there could be a topic like education, maybe school choice, maybe you know, one of the one of the bills that that Governor Evers vetoed was a bill that would have expanded the school voucher program that that allows um, children in Wisconsin to get to get uh, a voucher that allows them then to be able to go to a private school, a religious school, for example. Um, right now, there's income caps. So families, in order to get the voucher, need to make under a certain amount of, of money per year. Uh, the Republican bill would have said, no, nope, there's no more income caps. Any student in Wisconsin is eligible for, for a school voucher. Governor Evers vetoed that. Is that something where two Democrats could conceivably join Republicans? I don't know. I'm not convinced that that's going to happen in such a divided Wisconsin. But We'll see. We're going to talk to, to leadership uh, hopefully today about about strategies moving forward and where where some of these uh, points of consensus consensus with two members of the Democratic caucus could conceivably uh, uh, come together to help them pass a bill despite a veto. Jason, I know you have much more to do today, so we're going to wrap things up here shortly before we go off the record. I just want to know because we could talk politics. I'm sure you could talk politics all day long. What I want to know is what if you really had to sum up what happened here? What 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 is your summary? of the fall election of 2022 status quo status quo continues the the income especially in wisconsin the incumbents continue on in their roles as a check either on washington or on madison um and we're going to see that play out also in the legislature because the big game changer in madison would have been the super majority republicans did not get it so we're going to see that uh, we're going to see status quo there, where you're going to have a lot of friction between the Republican legislature, the Democratic governor, and both of them have e they have power. Um, we'll see how it's played out. And the big question is going to be moving forward: is what are they going to do about this five billion dollar budget surplus? You know, uh, Governor Evers wanted to see two mil two billion. This is with a B of that money go to public schools, things like uh, things like uh, mental health counseling, literacy programs and the list goes on and on, 
Republicans wanted massive tax cuts. Now, Governor Evers' proposal does include some tax cuts as well in that $5 billion budget surplus, uh, some of that money going to tax cuts. What are they going to agree on? They're going to have to agree on something, or other, otherwise the money is going to sit in the coffers. Um, and then we've got budget season coming around as well, where uh, where there'll be a lot of fights over where the money goes. And, and Governor Evers said he, he wanted his top priority in the budget is going to be increasing shared revenue. This is the, the, the money that goes into the state uh, from, from the municipalities that shared revenue and then they send it back to the municipalities. Um, for example, in Milwaukee, they've said for a long time they're not getting enough money to do things like hire enough police officers, keep the city safe, etc. They've been begging the state legislature for more shared revenue. Governor Evers says his top priority in the budget is going to be to increase shared revenue. Will he be able to, because there's a new mayor, you know, Mayor Kevlar Johnson, whose priority has been also trying to convince Republican lawmakers that they need this increase in shared revenue. Um, will there be some consensus on that moving forward? Uh, those would be some of the things I'm watching. Um, but again, status quo prevails with Evers winning, Johnson winning, and the legislature tilting a little bit more Republican, but at the same time not reaching that sewer majority. Yep. As you just said a couple of times there, voter, you use the word consensus. Voters have given the lawmakers and the governor in Wisconsin, the hardest job in politics, and that is to go find consensus. And that is good time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And joining us to ask that question is Open Records executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hi, Sarah. Hey, guys. Um, I almost said, hey, dudes, but that's weird. Okay. You can call us dudes. It's fine. We, we accept. <laughs> hey, dude, the, the, sh the show on Nickelodeon. On Nickelodeon. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that, that dates me. That dates yeah, that you can tell same. exactly how old I am by finding out when that show is on. I'm so out of touch with that now because my kids are older that I, I don't know that reference at all. I used to know all the Nickelodeon Great. I shows, watched it, though. Disney, yeah, so. all that stuff. I don't know any of that. Um, okay, so not the point, but I liked that little aside. Okay, so today we're talking about food. Not surprising, right? Okay, so I had another question set, but yesterday up in the Real Milwaukee office, the Real Milwaukee associate producer, Taylor, brought up a, a, a I don't know, a situation that happened in her home. She was making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and the way she made it, made her husband's head go, I'm sorry, what are you doing? So when it comes to a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you have two slices of bread because you're making a whole sandwich, do you put peanut butter on one side, jelly on the other and marry them together? Do you put on one slice peanut butter, then jelly on top, and then take the bare piece of bread and stick it on to make one sandwich? Or... Do both sides get both peanut it, butter and jelly? It's so funny how sort of I mean, and I'm not criticizing the question because I'm interested in it, but how inane the thought of this is like it doesn't matter. And yet it's probably it, it, it very matters. controversial. Well, and that's what I'm saying. So we put it on. Uh, we made a poll with it. So you can go to foxxnow.com slash poll and vote. It has garnered so many votes and we posted it on Facebook. The comments are out of control. I'm telling you, people feel this one. Jason, how do you make those peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Okay, so so this is this is definitely something that happens, right? Because I have uh, kids in school, and so this is the go-to lunch for the Calvi kids is yep. peanut butter and jelly. Um, 
and no, it, it peanut butter goes on one side and, and jelly goes on the other. And not only that, and I'll explain why, is, is also there's, there's two knives that are involved because- No, there aren't. No, there aren't. No, no, you, there's two knives no, involved. No, there's not, because, Jason. <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> because what happens is if, if you put the peanut butter and the jelly on the same side, now all of a sudden your knife is going That's to have peanut butter that you're yeah. going to stick into the jelly. That's going to be okay. disgusting. Yeah, no, so I, no. I, yeah. So now if you, if you take your clean knife with the peanut butter and put it on the left-hand side, and then you keep that, uh, keep that <laughs> knife in the peanut butter the peanut jar, butter. Yeah. Now, now, you, now, now you take your jelly and you put it in the jelly jar, you get the jelly, put it on the bread, and there's no cross-contamination between peanut butter and jelly. There's your answer. But don't you ever take the jelly knife. I do jelly first because jelly is easier to wipe off the knife. So I stick it in the jelly and I'll do jelly first on one slice. And then I will wipe with that and stick the knife in the peanut butter. <laughs> Clean knife now. Cleanish. And uh, then I will slap the peanut butter on the other side and then they get married. I, so, all right. I'm, I'm going to tell you if you're a, if you're a peanut butter lover, you might do peanut butter on both slices of bread and then squirt some jelly so, on top. And I actually so have, I have the squirtable j grape jelly. So you don't have to use a knife. <laughs> oh, you squirt no it knife. on. Oh, wow. You don't have to contaminate another knife. <laughs> Those big um, investigator if, bucks. <laughs> if you don't, yeah, right. Yeah, that's where I'm investing all of it is in squirtable jelly. Um, and, jelly. And mayo, by the way. Uh, Obviously. But, the, but no, if you have a regular jar of jelly, I, I, would, I would probably rinse the knife after... Well, no, actually, you're right. I, w I do peanut butter first. Peanut butter always goes first. I wipe that with a paper towel and then get the jelly, and then I rinse off the jelly. If I want some more peanut butter on the other side, I'll add a little more because I do love my peanut butter. But typically, I think it's one. Now, I, as you as you guys were talking about this, so I wanted to see what do the experts say. <laughs> and so I looked at food.com. I, I assume they must be experts. It's food.com. <laughs> And that they have sounds very, legit. very clear directions. Spread the peanut butter on one piece of bread. Spread the jelly on the other side. Put the two pieces together. Toddler because adaptation. Cut the crust off before serving. Oh, that does make it taste better. <laughs> I will say, though, Jason, you're correct. Because if you do it layered, so you'd have to commit to the amount of jelly you're getting the very first scoop. you got to commit yeah. to the yeah, proper yeah. amount. Otherwise, your knife is jacked up. And I will say that I can see you on Zoom right now. I know the listeners can't see this. But I can see that your photojournalist, Tanner, was shaking his head back and forth. So does he have a thought about it? <laughs> yeah, Tanner, come oh, on. Oh, we hold gotta, on. Hold let's on. get some input so, from Tanner Hempker. So, so Tanner did not hear the question, and he has no. Oh. He just hears me talking about jelly. But uh, Tanner, Tanner, we're gonna. That's oh, so wait, he's shaking his head was just judgment of the topic. From so your answer, I alone. just took out. I took out my earpiece, so now Tanner's here. You're on the Open Record podcast right now. Uh, we have a big question to ask you, and that is, when making peanut butter and jelly, where do you put the peanut butter and jelly? You were shaking your head when I answered. What, what's your answer? Okay, the proper way to do it is to put peanut butter on both sides on, on uh, each slice, and then you put a dollop of jelly in the middle. That way the jelly what? doesn't make the bread soggy, uh. especially when you're packing it for Kelby Kids lunch. <laughs> wow, there you go. There's the answer, folks. Oh, so wait a minute. So there's engineering behind this because he's saying the peanut butter serves as sort of a buffer to prevent the jelly from from softening up and, and, and uh, like yes, bleeding through the other side of the bread. because there is nothing worse than when some bread gets punctured with the goopy jelly, and then you've got like weird, transparent 
bread anyway. That's I get that. brilliant. Actually, I think I'm going to start moving to that. that Tanner, I'm adopting <laughs> your method. But I will say there needs to be, I don't know, the equal ratio. There's something about too much peanut butter and not enough jelly, though. I mean, you just put a lot. You put more than one dollop. you got to put a little couple dollops. Do you cut diagonal or No, that's horizontal? another topic because we could talk about that for hours. <laughs> Can we at least talk about the necessity of adding the banana to the peanut butter or do you want to hold that for the next show? On That's a PB a and J, actually, that does sound delicious. Yeah, it's awesome. Probably controversial. I do think the the diagonal or straight that that's a whole different topic. I I, I mean, I very easy answer is diagonal, but we could talk about that in a whole different <laughs> question. The only answer is. <laughs> and of course, then we can talk later about how to make the perfect grilled cheese, right? Okay. See, I'm just gonna start another podcast. It's just called Food. <laughs> Wait till I tell you about air fryer grilled cheese or air, air fryer PB and J. Oh, air I'm telling you, I'm telling you, amazing. Anyway, that's going to wrap things up for today. I know we, we have a lot more important topics to discuss. We could go on with PB&J all day long. Jason, thank you so much for your time uh, talking uh, election results. And uh, obviously, we'll look forward to more of your reporting uh, about this election on Fox 6 News. Thanks, Jason. Hey, thanks so much, everyone. And of course, thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, executive producer Sarah Smith, even photojournalist Tanner Hemker chiming in with his PB&J recipe. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. With that, I'm Brian Polson, and we'll be back next week.